You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode number 25 called Effective Yet Simple Methods for Introducing Real World Problems in Your Classroom. In this episode, Nick and I talked to Karen Lucci and David Sherwin about using real life problems to spark student interest in student-centered learning in the classroom. Nick and I also talk about 10 methods of best practice while using Google Drawlings. Hang on tight because this rocket ship is about ready to take off. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 25 of Got Tech, the podcast, and today we have our first four-person podcast. Sitting to my right is Miss Karen Lucci. She's a biology teacher. What's going on, Karen? Hey, not much. Just hanging here. Thanks for being on the show today. To my left, we have a repeat guest, our first one of those. So this is another first. This is Dave Sherwin. He was with us on episode six, Snow Day. Dave, how's it going? Great. It's great to be back. Welcome back. And of course, we have Nick Johnson across from me. That's the only intro that I get. What's up, Nick? How you doing? I'm doing all right. So let's just dive right into it. Why are we all here today? And I think our biggest connection, we have an English teacher, we have two science teachers and a former science teacher, but our biggest connection here today is having to do with real world experiences and bringing those into the classroom. But before we get into that, I'd like to go over some introductions. Karen, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm a high school biology teacher and I've been teaching for a long, long, long time. So I'm in the classroom right now teaching AP Bio and Honors Bio, and I've taught a variety of things like chemistry and life science and seventh grade physical science, and I've been in a few different school districts. So it's it's been a journey. That's awesome. But we here at Hopewell Valley know Karen Lucci by the name of Miss PD. That would be correct. That That's what I am known for. So why is PD so important to you? Well, it started off just as kind of a lark. There was a chance to go to Colorado for a week in July. I thought, I'm in New Jersey. That sounds like a good place to go in the middle of July. And it was a great week. It was about um, ev- teaching evolution. And as a biology teacher, it's something that's interested me. But we got it from different aspects, different perspectives. I met teachers from really, literally across Across the country and I really got outside my comfort zone and learned so much so even after being in the classroom for 20 some years at that point I learned so much and it really changed some of the things I did in the classroom that following year so I will tell you this I've been to Colorado on PD with uh, Karen 2016 and as I went there I knew only Karen but I will tell you the whole convention knew Karen Lucci and it was it was pretty cool. So we have Miss PD here. So Dave, you were on the show before. Right. And it seems like, I mean, that was our sixth episode. So that was almost 20 episodes ago. Wow. Yeah. So you have something pretty cool happening in your teaching career right now. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that? So it's not quite as long as as Mama PD here, (laughs) but I have been in the classroom for a while. And after, I think it's 18 years of uh, teaching everything from fifth up through 12th grade, uh, be stepping out of the classroom in exactly four days uh, to take on the role of of looking at the K-12 English and language arts curriculum for the entire district and working with uh, teachers, with PD, and just seeing about how we articulate, you know, all the way up from kindergarten up through graduation, what we want to do with our students. So I'm really excited. So you're taking on the supervisor role for the district. That's right. And how how are you feeling about that right now? It's absolutely surreal at this moment, uh, but overall, a lot of excitement because I, you know, I love exploring ideas. I like working with, with teachers and I like seeing what's possible. So I feel like there's going to be some, some doors opening, you know, in the very near future. I know for me, when I took the uh, big plunge from teaching to the position that I am now more of like a tech coach, I was very nervous about missing my students, that one-on-one relationship or the one-on-one being classroom and me relationship. So do you have any nerves about leaving the classroom in that way? Every day, every moment. Uh, you know, it's defined my career at working with with students and that interaction has been what, you know, my my professional life has been about. So yeah, there's, you know, Karen, you were talking about taking the plunge and doing something different outside your comfort zone. And yet there's the flip side of fear is excitement, right? And and opportunities. So I'm seeing both of those right now. But yeah, you're right. Every, every day, there's a little bit of that. What am I doing? I tell you what, I don't know why I just realized this. And you, we, we share the same feelings on, on that. But something else I just realized is I'm staring at three people that all got uh, teacher of the year at one point in time in their career makes me feel like a big slacker huh yeah well we've got a lot of a lot of heavy hitters around the table today but both with uh, Karen and Dave a lot of classroom experience ton of PD experience and I think before we get into the main topic of this segment which is going to be how to implement some of the tech that we like to push all the time here on the podcast into real world situations I think an important part of this introduction should be just kind of getting a feel for our two guests today and what they think uh, how they feel tech should be implemented in the classroom. So Karen, if you don't mind, we'll start with you. Just give us broad strokes, your take on technology and its its role in your classroom, classrooms in general, like sort of where you think it fits in. I think tech has to be um, just a natural extension of what you're doing in the classroom. And it lets you explore avenues that you couldn't before. Before you had a textbook and a notebook. And now you have just with the internet, you have the way of searching for different things, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time because sometimes it's hard to come up with things for them to explore that there's not an answer when they Google it. So that's a little difficult. I think everything we use should give them a chance to explore. I'm a biology teacher, so explore nature in different ways. And there are so many cool things. You can see things, you can create things to explain processes and modeling. When we look at science practices, we wanna model stuff. We wanna explain what's going on. We wanna ask questions. So being able to incorporate extensions in technology technology that allow them to do that in different ways where they feel comfortable and can express themselves most clearly is the best way to use technology for me. So kids who can't draw, maybe they could use other 
platforms to show me and be creative. Kids who can't write can talk and they can use things like Flipgrid and explain things um, in words that they would have trouble putting down on paper. Kids who can't see things can see different and even it's just looking at different animations or creating their own animations and showing a different showing me a side of them. So it's not only the content but Honestly, it's getting to know the individual student because they can show you things they can do beyond a notebook or taking a test or a quiz. I started PD, one big thing was using cases. So investigative cases are when kids read a story in biology and they start thinking about questions and then they explore answers to those questions. Those answers aren't in textbooks. They need to have just, that was just the internet. Can I just start looking things up and putting information together? So it has to be an extension of what you want to do that kind of inspires and creates that curiosity and that sense to try to understand what's going on. I'm going to hop in there and uh, Karen mentioned a couple things that I think she just hit it right on the head. She said that technology has to be natural. Someone once told me, I can't remember where I picked this up at. I know it was at one of the PDs, but they said that the best technology is technology that is invisible. All right, And think about that a little bit. If you go into a classroom and, and you are observing a lesson, and it, at the end of that lesson, if you say, oh, that technology was great. Well, is that what we really want to have our students learn is the technology or do you want the person leaving saying oh that lesson was great and I think that's the take-home point there something else that Karen touched on which I know guys and I mention all the time is just the choice that it gives your the students in your class it's not always like oh wow now I found this cartoon creator online that's how we're gonna draw cartoons uh, from this point forward it's well now there's another option for a student who might not be so good at drawing cartoons by hand or have a disability that prevents them from doing that as well as everybody else or maybe that's just what they're better at so that's what they prefer to explore i think part of making your lessons natural while using technology is just giving them options for doing things so i'm glad we brought up both those i'll just kind of switch right over to dave now so dave kind of the same question your broad strokes take on technology and its role and maybe even i don't know if this is possible because you haven't started yet but maybe even how that's going to fit in with your new uh, supervisory position right it's a good question i want to borrow maybe some of the terminology that two of you have used in the past and you know the difference between simply substituting technology versus having it be a transformative process and I think that the technology that really appeals to me is that which allows students uh, to do things that they couldn't do before that truly transforms what is even an option um, and so I can think of you know ways that we can begin in, Eng in the English classroom how we can communicate how I can offer voice feedback instead of having to have conferences in the classroom they can hear my voice, you know, um, with, with different extensions. I think about being able to meet with authors and different leaders through flat classroom experiences. I think about the authentic quality of being able to publish or podcast. And those those things didn't exist before. And, and just, the, just to see, you know, that some of the most powerful tools that humans have ever created uh, have been created in the last, you know, 10 years in, the, in this digital revolution is something that we need to pay attention to and that the students already intuitively know know the power of these and and uh, if we can harness that there's uh, the sky's the limit one thing that I really like is we just had what a 10 plus minute conversation on technology and not once did we drop 21st century learning we've been in 21st century for a long time <laughs> right and I had a uh, conversation with another podcaster 
a couple weeks ago when when uh, I was discussing possible ways of titling your podcast so they they stuck out. And one of the terms I used was 21st century learning. He goes, why are you still talking about that? It's actually Jeff Bradbury. But he goes, why are you still talking about that? He goes, we've been in the 21st century for a long time. Let's let's move on. Let's pick something else. And you know what? I agree. But none of us used that in that whole uh, segment, which I thought was pretty awesome. And uh, a, a big part of 21st century learning, just to kind of segue into, I think probably the, the real reason that we had Karen and Dave in here today was for them to kind of share some of their experiences, maybe with tech, maybe not. I don't want to limit it, limit it to that. But uh, kind of just talk about one thing that we think is extra important uh, for learners today, and that is implementing real world problems into, into the class into classroom experiences, trying to make learning as close to real life as possible. Because I think for a long time, most of the way that we went to school, when I say we, I mean any any older generation, myself included, you went and you sat and you listened to a teacher talk for whatever it was, 45 minutes an hour, and you wrote down whatever you could because they were the the holders of all this, this knowledge and this content, and you absorbed whatever you could and whatever you couldn't. Oh, well, maybe you read the textbook, but probably not. Um, but that's just not really what life is like at all. So once you get out of school and you're done with college and you're in a job, things usually aren't like that. There's there's creative solutions that need to be found in your career or whatever you choose to do with your life. So I think education is sort of starting to pick up on that and say, well, how can we mimic this in the classroom? What experiences can we give to students that let them be creative problem solvers? So uh, Karen, she mentioned a little bit about her PD earlier with uh, one organization in particular called HHMI. So Karen, we were hoping you could just sort of illuminate both HHMI and also connect that to some of the ways that it can provide real world experiences and problem solving for your students. Okay. Well, actually, prior to HHMI, um, my PD experience led me to do this stuff called investigative cases, where we write essentially a little story to get the kids to think about something, but it gives them a problem to solve. And they get to actually figure out what the problem is and then figure out ways to analyze it and solve it. From there, I kind of networked myself into going to um, another PD where I met people from HHMI. HHMI is the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and they have an educational branch called BioInteractive. So it's BioInteractive.org. And at BioInteractive.org, they make educational materials for high school, primarily high school and um, college level, advanced high school, AP, IB, introductory college. And what they do is they talk to the scientists whom they fund. So HHMI is a really huge private funder of medical research and scientific research. Huge, like millions and millions of dollars. And so what they do is they bring these scientists in who meet with teachers and then start developing resources for the classroom. So it's using cutting edge science. You don't use any pretend stuff. They don't make stuff up. It's all real. The data are all real. You can crunch numbers. You can do all of these different things with global problems. A lot of it right now is environmental science. And so you can then present these to the to the class. And I am what's called now an ambassador. I've worked, I have done workshops for them with different teachers for the past few years. In fact, I'll be in New York on February 2nd, working with another teacher and we'll be at the American Museum of Natural History for teachers in New York City. And we'll present um, ecological things 
But what we want to do is give phenomena because what we have lost in school is the is curiosity. We have drummed it out of our kids. By the time they get to high school, we're telling them stuff in science. And I, I heard a quote um, on a webinar that a kid said, you know, science is asking, answering all these questions that I've never asked, and I really don't want to ask. So how do we make it relevant to their lives? And HHMI does, the, does real research and brings in real scenarios of things that are going on. How did they figure out about sickle cell anemia? And who is it affecting now? And then why is it that you can't digest lactose? And all of these real world situations, and we develop explanations, and then we also look at problems, worldwide viral um, diseases, emerging diseases, and environmental science, there's so much going on there. And I get to go out and share some of the resources with different teacher groups. That's, that's awesome. What are you just and you find the student response is better to this kind of thing where they're actually engaging in this these sort of activities? Yeah, I have to say that I put up a video and first of all, I'm excited about it because I just <laughs> love their stuff. But this it's very engaging. Sean Carroll, who is... I, I'm sorry, I don't know his title. He's like some executive director, brilliant guru guy there. Sure. Um, that might be his title. Is really big about telling stories in biology. Biology is the story of life. And you, how, do we, how have we been telling people different things for thousands of years? There have been storytellers. Whether it's English or whether it's science, you bring people in with stories. So we tell the stories of biology and bring the kids in. And it really does make them curious. So that's what we try to do in science. We try to show them a picture and say, what do you think is going on? Or tell them a story. And HHMI has short videos, they have resources, they have even just phenomenal pictures, pictures you can put up and say, what do you think is going on here? And um, try to inspire some curiosity and and bring meaning to what you're doing in the classroom. Yeah, I think this is all great stuff. Uh, Narrative, we talk narrative in there. Narrative is key. Um, Narrative, in my opinion, is the first mechanism that supports personalized learning and that was the second key point that you put in there is making it relevant to the students uh, lives so those are two monumental important pieces to getting students engaged. And I I can talk a little bit about HHMI. I've been to a couple of their PDs at conferences and it's just good stuff. They spoon feed you on a plate gold. That's what it is. It's gold on a plate. And a teacher could just take that back and include it into their, you know, teaching repertoire. The thing for teachers is they need to experience it. So Karen is now telling you about HHMI. You need to go onto that website and uh, biointeractive.org and you have to just peruse all their stuff because all that stuff can be used in your classroom and it's not hard. Unfortunately, I heard about Biointeractive and HHMI after I was making the switch or the year before I was making the switch. So I only got to use some of their stuff. But I'm telling you, it's just it's just awesome stuff and quality resources. And the one thing I have to put in a little ad for them. It's all free. It's all free to teachers and it's cutting edge science. So there's really no reason not to go on and at least look at stuff. Yeah, I know sometimes we play the uh, educational films and and that's exactly what it sounds like. It's educational films and kids want to put their heads down. But I'm telling you, this stuff is very high quality. It's almost like uh, Planet Earth. And Planet Earth, kids ask to watch Planet Earth if you're going to have a sub. Mm-hmm. All right. This stuff is, you know, quality. It's exactly like that. So let's kick it over now to the uh, the non-science version of this. We have Dave Sherwin here, like we mentioned earlier. He's an English teacher. Dave, I know you've been a part of a couple recent one, I think just this past week, involved 
involving uh, one particular real world experience that you kind of crafted for your uh, one of your classes. And I know guys kind of helped you out with that. So could you talk a little bit about that most recent, I think it was a podcasting project, right? That's right. So I want to pick up with this narrative thread that we have going here. And I'm so excited to hear about that, <clears throat> Karen, with your program. Because, you know, some really exciting research, and I don't mean to go too tangential, but about the power of narratives for student resiliency and how students just do overall and, and just people in general is what kind of narratives are they telling about their life and about their experiences and what I've learned through podcasting with Geis here and, and his, you know, basically teaching me over the last couple of weeks about this process is that the narrative is, is the driving force in a podcast. So I have, we have students in this uh, public service class who are attempting to grapple with the, the really big challenges of our world. And part of the, the, the origins of this class were kind of saying, okay, you know, we have these skills that we try to emphasize with students, research, um, you know, uh, persuasive writing, uh, advocacy. Can we now, as seniors, ask them to use those skills in service of something that they really are passionate about? And I, and I think overall, students want to engage. They want to take on these big issues because they know that that's what they're stepping into. So I've always had them presenting uh, in a symposium where, you know, the default is Google Slides. And, you know, that's it's it's what we use a lot, but I, I, I was getting frustrated a little bit. It's like, um, what else could we do? And we explored TED Talks and others, but it seems like we've hit on something with this podcasting because of the narrative piece. And they ended up pulling in um, guest speakers like Karen uh, to talk about the climate or or like uh, so the heads of, of local nonprofits. And they got to tell stories. And to me, that was a really compelling way to pull together their work. And uh, I just want to thank Geis again for, for inviting me to do that. I, I had a great time. I, I got to hear a lot of the podcasts uh, after they recorded. I was interested, so I wanted to, to listen. They did a really nice job. I thought there'd be 10,000 likes, ums, buts, all that stuff that would need to be edited out if they wanted to. I told them that they're editing their own stuff because I want them to get the full experience. And to be honest with you, I don't want to edit four hours of podcasts. But I will tell you that they did a nice job and they really embraced the power and net narrative. And like it or not, I mean, one of the biggest selling points about podcasts are that that's a legacy. That's something that you're leaving behind. That's a digital footprint that's going to be there. I think about this all the time, and uh, I think about the book, The Last Lecture, and that was about a professor who was terminally ill and recorded all his uh, final lectures and his in his class and every class he taught his uh, children something new right that way when he was gone he's still impacting their lives and really podcast has that capability i think it also kind of circles back around is sort of how we started this whole segment which is real world problems now if you have a class project where the students have to make a podcast they're not necessarily solving a problem as they do that however they know it's real they know it's authentic they know they're producing something like you just said guys that leaves a legacy behind, it's going to be out there, maybe on YouTube, maybe actually published to iTunes or some other real podcast site. And the buy-in, the engagement, because they know that they're actually producing something that, you know, the, their classmates and their teacher aren't just going to see for five minutes and then it's it's just gone into the universe. It's Now it's a real tangible thing that lives on forever. It just makes it all so much more powerful and meaningful. And like you said, Dave, I think students really want that kind of stuff. They want to engage in that. And I think it just makes, makes it so much more powerful. 
So I know uh, you kind of alluded, Dave, on this, but uh, Karen, you were asked to come in and be a part of one of the podcasts. Yeah. And and people, uh, this wasn't set up. This isn't the reason why we have, uh, you know, us four people around the table. But what, what was your take on that? What was your experience like? And were you interested in the fact that students came up to you and asked you to be their expert. Yeah, I was kind of um, surprised and thinking, I'm really not an expert on this, but I can talk about a lot of stuff. So I was pleasantly surprised and it was really easy. I think once I start talking, because I've done that for a lifetime in a career, I've talked. So once I started talking, it didn't, nothing really phased me. It's kind of like being observed after a couple minutes, you don't even know somebody's watching you. And so it was very, it was really easy. And the, the kids, were well organized and they knew what they wanted to do. There was a plan and there was a direction um, and a point of view. I, I think that is what we want out of a podcast. Uh, I think that project is probably one of my favorites within the school year, just because it's something that Dave and I have been talking about doing for a long, long time. And I think it really, with the some of the teachers that heard about it, it's really generating some interest as a viable solution to a end of the year project or a midterm project or anything like that. Of course. And with, you know, I'm thinking K-12, I, second graders could sit around a table and tell a story and could find some, some compelling things about what they're reading or what they're most interested in. And it might be fascinating. I could imagine the power of sort of, like you said, there. there's this footprint now and something that exists, they could revisit that. And there's something uh, pretty profound, perhaps, to hear yourself at second in second grade, sixth grade, 12th grade, and just see the evolution of your own thinking. So you have two things there. You have a digital portfolio, audio portfolio, I mean. But the other thing is, is I know a lot of elementary school teachers do time capsules, but really, isn't that a digital time capsule? If you don't release it until they're seniors, I think that would be pretty cool. Absolutely. So just brainstorming a little bit, what are some other ways that we could use audio recording in the classroom? I just wanted, I saw Dave in the hallway earlier today and just talking about looking forward to recording this segment earlier today. Uh, something struck me with uh, thinking about his most recent podcast project. I thought it'd be so cool if it was almost like a class. If I, as Mr. Johnson, the chemistry teacher, have a podcast that isn't about teaching, but instead is about chemistry. And the po- the entire podcast is, as my students come in every year, I assign them in groups and say, okay, it's September. September is group. Group A's time to put together and build an episode of my chemistry podcast. And they can research and do it on any anything they want, as long as it's chemistry themed and as long as it relates to something we're covering in class right now. And like like you just said, then it be sort of becomes like this ongoing thing where the work that they're creating is real and it goes somewhere and it's part of a, a much larger, a larger scheme where, yeah, Mr. Johnson has this chemistry podcast and we never know what's going to be on there, uh, but it's always cool, different stuff, and it's the students who record it and produce it and put it out. I just think that could be so powerful and such a, a different thing to kind of bring the real world into the classroom. So you're using your students to tell the stories of your of your subject, which is awesome. And really, uh, we've done that at Hopewell Valley in our world language classes. I've had the uh, Spanish fours do a project where they're recording stuff on culture that they looked up. They would pick a place in an area predetermined by the teacher, and they would have to go in, do research about that place, go through the celebrations, some of the, you know, the heritage and all that. And then that information was presented to the Spanish ones. And I think that's just another 
great way of utilizing podcasts in the classroom. So we want to thank you guys so much for coming in and speaking to us today a little bit about what you do. And I hope all the listeners got some really great ideas for uh, kind of bringing, bringing the real world into their classrooms to increase their student engagement. And hopefully, of course, the end goal is increasing learning. So that was that was an amazing segment to have Karen and Dave. I know they're both two teachers that both guys and I really look up to, and it's great to kind of get their take on uh, not only technology, but bringing in some of those real world ideas. And whenever we get into conversations like that with anybody, let alone those two, um, it just kind of gets the creative juices flowing. It sort of gets guys and I thinking about all the different possibilities and all the different extensions and ways that we can use those same sorts of things. Um, so we thought maybe we'd, we'd end the episode with that, but sort of focus it in on one of the uh, G Suite applications that kind of gets ignored more more than docs, more than slides. That's what everybody talks about all the time, right? Docs, slides, and, and sheets usually. But there's kind of like this other cousin in the in the Google Suite called Google Drawings. And I think it's a really great tie-in to, to real world things because Google Drawings is something that students can use in all sorts of ways uh, post-school and it doesn't get a lot of attention. So we put together a list of 10 ways that Google Drawings can improve your teaching practice. So uh, guys, why don't you kick it off with the first idea that you came up with? I know a couple of weeks ago, we talked about ThingLink and ThingLink uh, 360. First, I got to give a shout out to Dan Gallagher, because after going back and looking at some of my professional development notes, and then actually talking to Dan a little bit on the side, I realized that he was the one that came up with the idea of doing a thing link 360 for the escape the room and i know we talked a little bit about that and since then we have looked at uh thing link 360 and created a couple of those uh digital escape the room clues so shout out to dan gallagher there i gotta give credit where credit's due so there's that but so sometimes you just want to get into your google drive and get working and you know you don't necessarily have to use thing link even though thing link is one of my favorite things in the world but i found that google drive Drawings will allow you to do the same thing just inside of a Google Drawing. And you could publish that as a PDF and it looks super clean. So take a picture, you're in Google Drawings, uh, you add a box to there and you put some type of a hyperlink in there. So say that we're taking one of my all-time most boringest lessons that I've ever created. I, I just have that thing with photosynthesis. It's a love-hate relationship. I know. You always talk about it. That's your like least favorite topic. Yeah. Every teacher has their least sure. favorite topic. But if I took uh, photosynthesis and I took a diagram of uh, inside of a leaf where the chloroplasts and all that stuff are, and I really want to, I want the students to know what each little part of the leaf does as far as traps energy produces sugar where all this stuff takes place i could give them a picture of the inside of the leaf they can go and make the interactive leaf uh using hyperlinks and things like that so what i could do is i can kick out a diagram of the in innards of a leaf and then what they could do is go make hyperlinks that kind of goes to a definition or goes to a video of the process or something like that which will make that picture come alive my favorite thing about 
about that, and th- I didn't know this until a couple months ago. Actually, was that you can uh, automatically turn the Google drawing once you're done into a, a PDF, like you just said, but all the links that you had in there remain active. So it kind of means the student can't edit it any further and mess up what you've created, but they still get the access by you know hovering over the links to kind of find what they're looking for. Um, another thing that I thought of for using Google Drawings is as simple something as simple as creating engaging infographics, uh, especially when it comes to and this kind of gets at the real world uh, stuff from earlier, but sharing statistics. Maybe you want to talk about uh, climate change and share some of the things that are happening in terms of the composition of the atmosphere over time or or, or the ice sheets and the, and the Atlantic or the North Atlantic and the Antarctic poles. And you want to show that change over time. Uh, you can have the students create those things in the Google drawing, which is just a, a great way to spread that information in a really engaging way, uh, more so maybe than you could do just on a piece of paper. And one thing that I always like to do with stuff like this is because a lot of the time, if you just tell your students, make an infographic, they may feel like they don't quite know how to do that. And sometimes that results in their products aren't the quality that you'd be hoping for. So uh, as the teacher, maybe before you send them out to just create that infographic with whatever statistics they find, you create some samples that maybe with the force copy, you can have them make a copy of your samples and then from there, make it their own just to kind of ensure that they're producing uh, the, the the level that you're looking for with uh, the infographics they create. I, I think that's a great idea. And uh, when I think in infographics, I think organization and things behind the scenes. And sometimes we could also use, which will be our number three here is graphic organizers. Going with graphic organizers, you could have concept maps, Venn diagrams, T-tables, those types of things. And you can do that all in uh, Google Drawings. And what one thing I really like about Google Drawings is the versatility it, as well as, uh, you know that I'm not very artistic, but I could still make a decent Google drawing. That's true. Yeah, you don't have to be super artistically talented because a lot of the stuff you're just pulling from other online sources anyway. So you don't have to worry about like, drawing the perfect leaf for your photosynthesis lesson. You, you just find a, a nice one that's open source and is, is open for sharing. So uh, that kind of reminds me too of, of another use for this, which would be great. And that is it's sort of like an annotation that you talked about first, but a different version of that would be a timeline where you find an image of a timeline that is then clickable so the students can learn about, you know, a a series of events over time, uh, but sort of exploring it on their own. The first thing that jumped out to me was um, we live just outside Philadelphia. And I don't know, guys, you grew up right near uh, the Gettysburg battlefield area. So a lot of Civil War stuff. And I've visited it myself several times. It's a great spot. But it'd be so cool if you were in that unit, uh, sort of teaching about the Civil War and the battles. You could have a picture of some of the Gettysburg battlefields, battlefields, put over top of it another image of a timeline of battles that occurred there. And then as the students gain access to this document, uh, they can click on each event of the timeline. And because you've linked those things ahead of time, it takes them to maybe a brief video that explains that particular battle. Or maybe it takes them to another resource where they can read about what happened or another just maybe an image of something that took place at the battle. And that could be part of some larger thing. So uh, making something which otherwise is pretty boring. I know as a chem teacher, I do some timeline stuff too with like the history of the development of atoms. It can be so dry if you're up there just kind of spouting out these dates, but something like this can make it come uh, come alive. 
And what you could do is you could create the template of the, you know, the map of Gettysburg and also put the timeline on there and maybe even put the battles names on there and then make it a collaborative project with your students and have them go in and put a hyperlink to a video or to some type of resource or, or primary resource even. And I think that would really make that project come alive. And then even expand it even further by having that as your, your research. That's your class research and then have them even go further into that project. Or do like a digital jigsaw where each student is assigned a different battle. So one kid in the group of four, let's say, has Gettysburg. Someone else has the Battle of Wilderness. Somebody else has Antietam. I'm running out of Civil War battles. You get the point. But they each make their own and then they swap and they rotate around with every with each other's uh, clickable links. Uh, so that way they're kind of doing the research for one, but then gaining access to all the information from the other kids too. There's so many good ways to use that. I, I almost feel like that is the old school Oregon Trail game because really it's a map and you got these two little graphics traveling across the map until they get to a new town which has a date there and there's activities that you could do. I feel like it's kind of the same thing but just broken down into a like a very very simple form. Yes that'd be awesome. All right so that brings us up on posters and flyers and I really don't think there's a whole lot to uh, say there other than the fact that there are different add-ons and uh, extensions and stuff that could really help you with your posters, give you some type of a, a template where maybe you only need to change the colors or they or the font or something like that. And there are plenty of extensions and add-ons that allow you to change or add more fonts to what's already there. And there, there's a ton of fonts there, but I think uh, we can't mention Google Drawings without at least acknowledging the fact that it's a good spot to make a poster or flyer. I think a good way to use Google Drawings would also be a badging system uh, for your classroom where students can uh, receive almost like a like a digital sticker for doing a good job at something or for mastering a certain skill. If you're you know if you're if you're moving away from maybe you know assigning grades and you're just sort of going on a concept mastery, then you can design your own stickers that you kind of push to the kids, to the students, and they can keep a catalog of the badges that they've earned for doing certain things. Kind of a fun way to you know to use that badging system but also as the teacher get creative and make some of your own themed badges i know i would take my little probably cartoon face and put it in the middle of some sort of like a coin kind of think of a creative name for it i don't know but some image that really is your own because then the students kind of appreciate that you've you've made this thing yourself and it's it's part of your classroom it has a little feels a little more special and personalized so the next one that we're going to go to are digital rubrics and this is a mashup you know this is taking Google Drawings and taking Google Keep and mashing them up to make a super app here. And uh, what we're going to do to make a digital rubric, you say we have uh, three different grading criteria and each one of those grading criteria has one, two, or three. Or proficient, advanced proficient, or not proficient. Right. Unsatisfactory. Right. So it's a three by three grid. So you make your, your rubric and then what you do is you copy each box. Now you can use the snipping tool, copy it, put it into Google Drawings, change the background color, all that. Or you could just take a square from Google Drawings and uh, change the background to it. And what I would do is each category is a different color. So light blue might be the hook. Say we're writing something in English where you need a big sexy hook to capture the attention of uh, your student or of the reader. So say that's light blue. You explain what the one is. You explain the criteria for the two. You explain it for a three. And each one of those is a different picture that you save. Once you 
save it in Google Drawings as a JPEG, you could drag it over to your Google Keep. Once you put it into your Google Keep uh, and you're reading through the person's article or whatever they're working on, there's a little button in Google Drawings where the Google Keep symbol comes up or in Docs, while you're in Docs reading their article, there's a little button for Google Keep and you can go in there and just drag that rubric square over and it automatically pops into their document. So there is a little bit of legwork up front, but if this is an activity that you do a lot, such as like a unit reflection and you wanna give them feedback, once you make those nine squares, you'll always have those and you can use them for every project and just drag them over and it makes grading a lot quicker. I just saw a teacher uh, this past, uh, just last week actually, who was grading a bunch of lab reports and complaining because uh, this person kept making the same comments over and over again on the student reports and it was electronically grading it in Google Docs. And I just, I just happened to overhear and I said, well, do you know there's this thing Google Keep where you can kind of have your canned comments made by you in that Google Keep sidebar. So you don't have to type that same thing over and over every time. You just click and drag. And this person had not heard of Google Keep. So it was like this amazing revelation. I didn't know that you in your Google Keep sidebar, you could keep images. So now, like you said, you can color code these rubric points, drag them over. That sounds awesome to me, which actually sort of leads into my next one, which is an interesting application of, really you could do this on any any of the uh, Google app applications, but I think this one's particularly good because of the image aspect. And that is, of course, you could run a digital debate using a Google Keep image where there's sort of, you take your, your Google image, your, the picture frame, and you divide it in half. And each half of the screen represents like a different side to an argument. And then as the class, however you want to divide it up, uh, half the class sort of gathers all the, the arguments on one side and posts and copies into this, that side of the Google drawing uh, links to uh, the things that support that argument. The other class does the same thing on the other side. And then all that stuff is, is being collaboratively generated for everybody to view afterwards. And then maybe the follow-up to that is, you know, the students then work individually to decide which, uh, which side of that argument they fall on based on on the resources that the class has pulled together. I know you could do the same thing with like a Google Doc, but like I think with the images that you could put in to the Google drawing, maybe have some kind of creative looking background. It might just add an element of engagement for the kids. Yeah, and I, I really like the debate aspect of, of a classroom. And one thing I really like about Google Drawings is bringing, making it more interesting. When people say debates, they either get really excited because they love to argue, yep. all right, or they're passionate about something, or they think it's the most boring thing in the world but if you could bring that to life by adding images or, or putting a, a url to to a small video clip or something like that i think that really does bring it alive and, and really you can use the the next um way to improve your teaching practice in google drawings with the, the debate and that's to make a collaborative post-it walk so i know i go to a couple of professional developments a year where they roll out the poster paper put it up on the wall there's 10 questions or 10 different things that they want you to comment on. They give you a whole bunch of post-it notes. You write stuff down on post-it notes and then you have to put it up on the wall. Oh yeah. But at the end of the professional development, you might get a couple clever people who take pictures of the each post-it board. And after that, it's they tear them down and they're gone. What I would like to do is for maybe a test review or any review of anything that you're you're going over is to get students to identify misconceptions 
like some of the general misconceptions of that class? What are the, the misconceptions of evolution? What are the misconceptions of the 1820s? All right. And each student or each pair of students uh, on Google Drawings, they put a misconception up at the top. Okay. And then students get to walk around to each other's misconceptions that they put there and they get to put in a colored box and type in you know maybe a new way to explain that that misconception so it's no longer a misconception it allows the person who's struggling with that topic to think of it in a new way that they're going to remember that's cool so it's kind of gets the same theme of sort of walking around and leaving those post-it notes but now it's just a digital version which I, i'm not sure if you mentioned this but then you don't have to worry about that annoying part of the end which is going and having to take pictures of each thing because everybody has access to all the different drawings replacing that big giant poster paper. you know what i would really do as a teacher there i would tell every student that they had to publish their um, misconception and all the, the the digital post-its on there right as a picture send it to me i put it in a google slide and then they have something to study from or they have something to look at as they're prepping for the test because all that stuff's there and that's something that you could use year in year out if next year you didn't want to do it for that chapter but hey guess what you've the year before now you have it so i think that's uh, that's a game changer. You could even have like a template made up for like uh, different, instead of different colored post-its, the physical little post-its, you could have colored boxes, like a red one, a blue one, and a green one. And the student putting up that digital post-it gets to choose what color they type in. Maybe the different colors mean different things. You type in the green box if you have a, an answer to the misconception. Type in the red box if you want to, clar- is I don't know, maybe clarify what they're actually confused about, what that misconception is really about. So there's a, there's like an added element of analysis and critical thinking to the whole assignment. There's a lot of cool things you could do with that. Uh, and then that brings me, of course, to the final one, our 10th way Google Drawings could be used in the classroom, which is a, a simple one, again, that we've seen a lot of different ways, but I think the Google Drawings could make it extra engaging. And that is, of course, a class to-do list with Google Drawings. Find a nice image, make it look make it look attractive, make it look good, and then maybe do like a forced copy thing. So as the students get the shared link to the Google Drawing, they make their own copy so that they can... And, uh, either delete things from the to-do list as they complete them or edit it in any other way that they see fit. Maybe even the to-do list could be made of images themselves for an extra level of just sort of being something different and a nice way to let the students know what they have to complete. So this episode brought us a lot of creativity. I know some of the stuff we've already incorporated into our classrooms. I know some of it we're interested or we heard about. And a couple of these things we just made up off the fly. But we hope that you got something out of this episode. Uh, We're super excited about a lot of firsts that we uh, were able to check off. Four guests, a lot of teachers of the year around here, and a one-repeat guest in Dave Sherwin. So we want to thank everybody, Karen and Dave, for coming on the show today. Until next time, you're listening to Got Tech, the podcast, www.gottech.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at WeGotTech.